nowadays I've looked at prices of three bedrooms and I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. Even one bedrooms are fucking astronomical. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'm totally glad we decided to buy when we did, even though, you know, our house needs a shit ton of work, but, um, yeah, I, I honestly don't think we could afford a two bedroom. I think my, just my wife and I, we could probably live in a one bedroom yeah and be okay but then i wouldn't have like a cool like bonus room den blah 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 you know but my house has no bonus rooms yeah on the plus side no kids could move in with us i mean so. in my house the living room is a bonus room so <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> and I still I, almost I knew, killed you. I knew it was coming ahead of time. But, yeah. Because I was thinking at the same time you said it, too. I was like, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> That's probably going on the beginning of the episode. <laughs> I almost killed my friend. That's right. Because I made you watch the Mulan version. Jason Danger. And uh, we're going to talk some movies today. We're going to talk some silly movies. How you doing? Good. Good. Me too. What'd you do last week? Read a book. Read most of a book. The new Stephen King one? Yep. Nice. Yeah. I uh, bought that book. I think I got into the first chapter a little bit, but I, my prob- I keep trying to read it as I'm going to sleep. And sometimes, especially with his books, if they catch me, then I can't sleep. Or I'm just so tired and I just can't keep my attention on it. And I get a couple lines and then I'm like, I'm going to have to start that chapter over again and put it up. So I'm pretty much going to have to start the book over again because I haven't made it that far yet. Hmm. I've got, I think I've got like 100 pages to go. So I'm almost done. I should have been done a while ago. I just haven't. I, I I don't read much when I'm not at work. So how are you liking it so far? It's all right. Yeah. It's a. I mean, it's a decent book. It's very derivative of one of his earlier novels, but I don't really want to say which one because I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't read it yet. So. Right. Uh, maybe after you finish reading it and I finish reading it, we can talk about it. We'll have a book discussion. We can talk about it on the show. Yeah. Let everybody know what we thought of it. Because obviously they're dying to hear. Yeah. Breaking down the yeah. vault door. Airlock? Airlock? That's what they're called. Yeah, they're called airlocks. That's what yeah. they're called. I, I couldn't tell because it's in Russian. So it's, it, was awfully, it was awfully nice of them to deliver the new novel to us. 
in uh, in space. Oh, you got it in uh, paper form. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm I I cheaped out and went for the ebook version. Yeah. Because you know Amazon. Well, these are all first editions, so I hang on to them. That's true. Yeah. yeah. I I I have done. I mean, I've I've even uh, gone so far as to get uh the first edition book of a book if i if i just already think i'm going to like it whatever i'll get the book but then i'll also get the ebook version right. for portability's sake cuz uh i can just load it up on the kindle and run with it yeah when he announced that he was going to finish up the the gunslinger series and he put out wolves wolves of the kala mhm and like how well, I'm buying all of these books first edition and I just might as well buy all the rest. So I think I bought every book that he's put out since then. Uh, well, no, he did like some like baseball book with some other guy. It's a, it's not a, it's not a fiction book. It's them talking about how much they love the Boston baseball guys. I don't, what, Red, Red, so- Red, Sox. Red Sox. Yeah. yeah it's the Red yeah. Sox. Cause I, I am a sport man. I know lots of people that I call sport. All right, sport. Yeah. So, uh, but baseball's America's pastime. Yeah, it's past its time. <laughs> <laughs> Old man sport. <laughs> so, what'd you do this week? I. Hmm. Great answer. Yeah. I honestly can't remember. You caught a space possum. I did. Another one. Mm-hmm. Yep. I did end up cleaning out a couple rooms, so did that, but I don't know. I guess the spring cleaning continues in the middle of summer. Such a thrilling, I know, thrilling life. I'm boring and old now. No, I don't oh, know I when that a, happened. I watched a couple movies, too. I did that. <laughs> strangely enough, I did that as well. Um, I suppose that's a good um, segue. Probably should have taken it, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, what movie did you recommend? I can't quite remember. I recommended the Moulin Rouge. Oh, yeah, you did, didn't you? Yep. That's the whole reason we're not going to be friends anymore, isn't it? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I recommended The Editor from 2014. So, why don't we hop into talking about Moulin Rouge? Well, all right. All right. So, uh... Moulin Rouge, 2001 release date. Um, lovely little story about a young English poet writer who falls in love with a courtesan in 1900s Paris. Just to get this off on the right foot, 11 minutes into the film, I took my first note, which reads, Fuck this movie. 11 minutes in, I was done with this. The fact that there was an hour and 50 minutes left to go, that was harsh. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, Boz Lerman, basically, uh, the director, right? he kind of released this as his uh, sort of three-part movie trilogy to the theater arts. Uh, he, he actually released a box set later with all three of the movies. Um 
Was Romeo and Juliet part of Romeo that? Romeo and Juliet was was his second one. And but that the, one came first. It was the second one. Moulin Rouge was the third. The very ah. first one in the, uh, I think he called it the Red Curtain Trilogy when Got he released it. a box set for it. Um, the very first one was the dance movie. Breaking? No. No. Totally different. That's too bad. It should have been Breaking. Strictly Ballroom was the okay. very first one. A little uh, bit different than Breaking. Yeah. Strictly Ballroom, Romeo and Juliet, and then the Moulin Rouge. Um, and basically, the, the theme for all three was some form of uh, theatrical expression, theatrical motif. The first movie, Strictly Ballroom, was more about dance, which it still had some awesome music in it too, but it was more a movie about oh, dance itself. One out of three ain't bad, I guess. And then R- Romeo and Juliet was... Uh, uh, po- poetry and language. Is that yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio? Yep, yeah. Leo, Leo DiCaprio, Claire Danes. Yeah, I think yeah. So. Uh, and then the Moulin Rouge was more focused on the music itself, on so, somebody else's music. Somebody else's music for sure. But um, do you know? Do you know why they did that? Why they used more modern music for right. 1900s? Uh, he said he did it because, um, based off of the uh, uh, the story, uh, he kind of borrowed some storylines from various operas and stuff. Right. Uh, before before Boz started directing movies, he was actually an opera director. Right. So he he borrowed from um, basic idea. He was he was trying to make Christian the main character, Ewan McGregor's character. He was trying to make him seem uh, ahead of his time. Right. Basically. Yeah. So he wrote a bunch of songs from late 20th century. Yeah. And transplanted that shit into 1899. Yep. As a way to make it look like he was ahead of his time. It was beautiful. But as soon as as soon as Smells Like Teen Spirit started, I was out. <laughs> checked out. <laughs> the next time I remember checking back in, Heroes, David Bowie. <laughs> and I was like, Fuck you, seven ways from Sunday. You are a horrible man. Quit butchering great music. I enjoyed it quite a bit. You know, apparently Marilyn Manson was supposed to sing the vocals for um, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Oh. But um, he was in a feud with Courtney Love at the time. Ah. And so she pulled the the... Uh, owner's rights card and said right. that you have to get somebody else to do it or I, I pull the song. So uh, they got somebody else to do it. Ozzy Osbourne. Was it Ozzy? I believe. So. I saw his name in the credits. No, I so. think Ozzy, um, there was a scene, that Tinkerbell scene. He was supposed to do the vocals for that Tinkerbell scene. Right. And they wound up getting somebody else to do it, but he still did the scream when she turns evil. Okay. Yeah, he still did that. So okay. I think that's the only thing that he the did. But I part. don't. Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head. All right. Well, overall, the uh, cast, all-star cast, Ewan McGregor, who we know as young Obi-Wan. Yeah, and I curse him to play nothing but Obi-Wan for the rest of his life because of this now. <laughs> what about, uh? oh, shoot. Is that one movie he was in? He's been in a lot of one movies. Well. It was a British movie, a lot of drugs. 
Oh, train spotting? Train spotting. Ewan McGregor yeah. and train spotting. No. Uh, pretty good. I don't want him in anything where he gets any more recognition. Okay. I want him to fade into the Obi-Wan Kenobi background in these crappy Star Wars movies that are coming out and never, ever, ever be talked about again. You might get your wish because I heard a uh, rumor yeah. that there's an Obi-Wan movie coming out. Yeah, I think they're doing Boba Fett next, and he may show up in that one. I don't know exactly why, but I think there was a rumor that he would. I could be making that up. I don't. I really don't know, and I don't care. Uh, Nicole Kidman from Days of Thunder, Stepford Wives. The Days of Thunder is the movie that she met her former husband on. And this movie, oddly enough... This movie was released right after their separation, but before their divorce. So I like to think that this movie had something to do with destroying that marriage <laughs> because this movie destroys everything that it touches. Oh, uh, John Leguizamo, who my favorite role was uh, in Spawn. I was going to say, I think this was his punishment for playing the clown in Spawn. I yeah. Think that's... Yeah. I mean, Spawn itself, not an awesome movie, but I really liked him. As, as the clown in Spawn. Yeah. Uh, Jim Broadbent has yeah. been an actor for freaking ever. Uh, Topsy Turvy was one I remember I watched Never a long time it. ago. That, uh, you probably wouldn't like it. It's, uh, it's anything like this? No, I wouldn't. It's a, it's a Gilbert and Sullivan sort of story about Gilbert and Sullivan who are famous. I don't even know what, the, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're famous uh, musical Writers, directors, producers. If you had said drug dealers, I might have actually like yeah. paid attention. Yeah. But, but uh, what else? Oh, he played a. Uh, uh, he was in Superman Four, which none of us mm. watched. I think. And or we all watched him, which we hadn't. He was in Eric the Viking, uh, the Crying Game. Did Did he play the 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 guy with the? No. No. He wasn't. He wasn't that. I got a penis surprise guy. No, I mean he's he's been a, a lot of his roles have been more you know secondary. It would've uh, been funny whatever, if but it was him and 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 Gabriel Byrne as the as the, as the leads in that film. I'm I'm cringing. <laughs> not, um, not to make light of that. Richard Roxburgh played the Duke. Yeah, that name doesn't mean I've seen the guy. I've, I I recognize his face, but I couldn't tell you what I seen him in. And the name does not bring any bells at all. He was in uh, Mission Impossible 2 and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Who did he play in League? I don't remember. Interesting. Yeah, but... I actually own that movie. I really shouldn't. It's a terrible movie, but... Yeah, no, it's not a very good movie. I want it to be better than it is every time I watch it. Mission Impossible 2 is not a good movie either. Hey, this guy is consistent. (laughs) He has apparently never been in a good movie. As far as we know. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, Kylie Minogue played the Green Fairy. Yeah. I didn't really understand the whole Tinkerbell thing. I don't know it's, why. It's uh, absinthe. They, yeah. they call it the Green Fairy, and well, supposedly it makes people hallucinate. So I guess originally the fairy was supposed to be like a dude, like a like a buff dude in like... I didn't hear that. ...tight pants and stuff, like a literal fairy. Okay. Um, But I guess there was some sort of issue with like... You know, wanting a PG thirteen rating and right. stuff like that. So I did not hear that. Yeah, there's also a thing about like the courtesans used the 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 knickers that they wore were split knickers like oh. in real life. Yeah, and yeah. So they they opted not to go that route because they wanted the PG thirteen rating. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, that was the that was the big takeaway for me. Was, uh, <laughs> there were no split knickers in this show. 
Uh, and then uh, Placido Domingo was in there as well. I don't know who that is. He is one of the three tenors. Okay. Which involve in, include uh, Luciano Pavarotti and uh, Jose Carreras. They they were pretty big, putting out like three tenors, you know, right. stuff for for a while. I mean, they had Christmas albums and whatever uh, Italian arias, operas. Mm. Uh, but he's also been in a lot of made-for-TV type stuff, all operatic, um, and some of his bigger roles are obviously operas, uh, doing Carmen and uh, Don Carlo. So it's a pretty big name that they were able to get, and I think they were able to get it partially because Boz Lerman was an opera. So what role did he wind up playing in the film? He was the man on the moon. Oh, yeah. Yep. I remember seeing that at one point and going, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Uh, also interesting story, which I, it makes sense. I mean, there was a lot of music in there that was, you know, sourced from various places and people, mm-hmm. uh, it took Boz roughly two years to secure all the rights for yeah. the songs. seemed like there was one song. I remember, I don't remember what it was. Um, I remember reading about this. There was one song in the entire soundtrack that was an original piece, but it was originally meant for a different movie. And didn't get used in that movie, so it it became um, it couldn't get a, a nomination, a Grammy, or maybe an Oscar nomination for best song in a musical because it was originally supposed to be for another movie. Oh, and I can't remember what song that was. That seems weird. If it wasn't used for the other movie, why they wouldn't be able to use it for? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't understand any of the fucking rules for the Oscars. Yeah. They're all nonsensical as far as I'm concerned. So. I, don't, I don't even think the Oscar people understand any of the rules for the Oscars. Yeah. Apparently before he made the movie, it was right after he had made Romeo and Juliet. Right. Um, he ended up going to some sort of uh, movie theater in India. Right. I remember the story. Ended up seeing this... Uh, Bollywood. It's like a three and a half hour long Bollywood masterpiece. Yeah. And that's what that's what kind of made him decide I want to see if an American audience will be able to enjoy this, basically. So he that's when he started coming up with the idea for the Moulin Rouge and kind of put it together. Uh, obviously sampling from A popular music and then B his uh operatic background. Um and just kind of combining all those things together and uh, making it definitely felt, a lot of it felt kind of Bollywood-esque. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, have you heard of Toulouse-Lautrec before? No. Before this, no. Uh, he was actually a, so that Moulin Rouge actually was a real place that existed in Paris, France back in the day. Right. I think it's probably maybe still there but not not the same type of place it was back sure back then but um so some of the people that used to hang out there though were artists you know just kind of like they portray in there um and one of the artists that hung out there was Toulouse Toulouse Lautrec um don't know that he was actually involved in any sort of theatrical productions he was mostly a visual artist uh, painting, drawing, things like that. 
Um, one of his more famous paintings actually was of one of the prostitutes at the Moulin Rouge. And I think I read somewhere it sold for $22 million last time it was up for auction. And the reason he was such a short person, they were portraying him, John Leguizamo portraying him as a kind of a dwarf midget type person. Dwarf would be the proper, Well, uh, maybe a little person now. I'm tech, it, it pretty was sure a, midget is out completely. Well, it was, it was an odd form of dwarfism, whatever it was, because he was growing apparently at a normal rate. Uh, and then at age 13 or 14, he broke one of his legs. And then the next year he broke his other leg. And then after that, his legs just didn't grow anymore. His upper body grew normally, and he had the full torso, arms, head of a man, and legs of a child. So, Deadpool 2, then? To a point. But there are there were rumors circulated about him that he had, uh, well, he, he had a nickname of Tripod back then. So... There was rumors circulating that extremely large junk. <laughs> sure, it just wasn't regular size and looked big because of his legs. I don't know. It's. I mean, it's all rumors, you know. No, uh, as far as I know, no one actually has any proof of it. So. Well, he's a visual artist. He could have painted it. <laughs> Shade, could have called it self-portrait. Shaded it to look bigger. Hypertrophied genitals. Hyper, hypertrophy what? Hypertrophied genitals, which oh yeah, basically means extreme cell growth. I don't know that. I mean, when the whole thing just first opened, first song they sang is "Nature Boy." I have always loved that song. I'm used to the Nat King Cole version um, myself. He's the probably one of the first people that actually made it famous from from that, and then and then the cinematic stuff that they did with it. Uh, Boz is pretty famous. Boz Lerman is pretty famous for the extreme color that he uses in his movies. And uh, just some of the odd, crazy, sweeping camera angles that he used through here, you know, trying to capture some of that Bollywood movement, but then also bringing in some more of what he's learned now as a, as a film director, some of the, um, more other visual stunning effects that you can do with sweeping camera angles and, and things like that. It, it, uh, I don't know. I enjoyed all of it. All of it. <laughs> so I brought up this whole, the whole question uh, a bit ago about if you knew why they used modern day music, what the rationale was. Yeah. Because I have a viewpoint on this. Um, I think that it's extremely fucking lazy. My whole issue with this movie is that my big <laughs> issue with this movie was that they they didn't write original music for the movie. And this whole kind of nonsensical idea that he's ahead of his time, so we're going to use music that already... Any modern-day writer or at least twentieth or late 20th century writer of music could have written a... a music for them that would have been ahead of its time because it was literally written a hundred years after the fucking 
the story takes place. So any music they had written would have been ahead of its time. The idea that he needed to snatch music from other places and make ridiculous medleys and just, I, think, I don't need a movie of bad cover songs. I, th- I think part of the, the uh, reason for that too was to appeal to fans of that genre of music as well, or those, I'm sure, you know, and, and for some of us, it, for some of us, it worked right really well. Well, this is a, this is a, I'm coming from a, a place of, extreme ignorance on this but this feels like a very like theater nerd movie yeah and obviously this movie had a bigger impact than just that there was a lot of people that liked this film but this movie really feels like if you're on the inside this is a great film but if you're somebody like me who doesn't have any interest in theater just in general and certainly doesn't have any interest in uh song and dance numbers this movie is a fucking two hour long nightmare. Like after I watched it the first time, I made up every excuse that I possibly could not to watch to it not again. watch it again, <laughs> even though I needed to take notes. <laughs> it was when you get about I think it's about an hour and maybe twenty minutes into the movie, and you get to the point where the Duke has Satine up in the room and they're about to consummate or whatever and she sees Christian and changes her mind and so he basically rapes her or he's about to rape her yeah. and then she gets saved by someone else. Right around that point, I'm thinking, okay, so this is actually the the whole she's going to die is kind of a, a red herring and because you think you know she's sick and she's going to die of the sickness. I'm thinking, okay, this is a red herring. The Duke's going to kill her here and then we're going to have about 10 more minutes of the film in which Christian goes and avenges her and yada yada and that'll be it the movie will be over that's what you wanted to happen and no that's what I thought was going to happen and then I looked at how much time was left on the film there's 40 minutes of film left and this feels like this is going to be the end of the movie and there's still 40 minutes left I'm like what the fuck else are you going to squeeze into this goddamn thing and then they just kept going with it and held this whole huge gigantic set piece at the end with the goofy everybody chasing the gun and a slapstick thing and I was like just you could have ended this movie forty minutes ago, <laughs> and it would have been a fine movie. I mean, it wouldn't. It would. I still would have hated it, but it would have been a perfectly passable film. This last forty minutes did not add anything to the film that was necessary. So, it's bloated. It's overlong. It's self-indulgent, and their inability to write new music for it. All of these things work against it, in my opinion. It just, it's so hard for me to set aside my own personal bias about musicals in general yeah, yeah. and enjoy it on a, on a movie level because they just do everything possible to fucking get under my skin is what it feels like. Yeah. Like this is the movie that was, this, this movie is worse than trick or treats. Well, and you said, you, you, you said that's, that's, that's pretty, wow. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Right, right to the soul. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you said you purposely were avoiding it too for, you know, years. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't, it wasn't like an active, it was just one of those things where I knew I was never going to watch it. So I wasn't ever worried about watching it. Yeah. 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 Little did you know. Little did I know. Yeah. Little (laughs) did I know I would seal my own fate at some, yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, Just a couple of musical numbers that I freaking personally loved. Okay. Was uh, the Roxanne Tango. Fucking loved it. 
I mean, the, you know, the narcoleptic Argentinian is uh, telling a story about loving a woman who gets paid to be loved and then, and then breaks into this Roxanne song and then starts dancing the tango and everyone joins in. I freaking love it. And then Jim Broadbent singing like a virgin. It was slapsticky. It was, it was stupid, but it was funny as hell. What was the name of the dude that played the Duke? Richard Roxburgh? Roxburgh, yeah. That was his favorite filming experience in the movie. Yeah. Was the... the Doing the Like a Virgin scene. Like a Virgin scene. I yeah. could see it. I mean, the choreography behind it was really good, and I don't know, just having somebody... I mean, granted, Jim Broadbent has done some really weird, really campy sort of roles, too, in his career, but he's actually a really respected, really notable uh, actor. And to have him sing like a virgin, it, I don't know. It just it cracks me up every time I, I see that scene. So This is going to sound like a weird thing to say. I don't take this film personally. <laughs> that is a weird thing to say. But... <laughs> The two scenes that you just described are like your least favorite. <laughs> all, yeah, they're like the bridge that divides you and I. <laughs> it's like you're just stabbing a knife into my heart over and over again. <laughs> I try, I try not to take this film personally, but it it feels like it was meant. As a personal assault against me. <laughs> and spoiler alert, in case you didn't know, Satine dies at the end. So, but other than that, I mean, that's pretty much all I got. The on only there. sad part about that really is she was the only one that died at the end. Oh. <laughs> yep, they did try to kill Christian a couple times. Didn't quite nail that. Even the Duke doesn't die. Yeah, I, I kind of wish he would have died. And in theory, the whole theater, Moulin Rouge, got turned over to him since he had the deed. So, you know, that was also a sad ending. Yeah, I think uh, the only... The, the only... Like, I don't have a whole lot more to add to this, but um, there was a, a bunch of people that were, you know obviously in line for the roles of Christian and uh, Satine. The one that stood out to me was uh, Courtney Love was actually, um, she was interested in the role of Satine. Right. Um, which would have been a very interesting movie. The guy, the director, whose name I don't remember. Boz Lerman. Bo, yeah. yeah. He wound up saying that um, the reason that he wound up going with Nicole Kidman is because Courtney Love is like fire and Nicole Kidman is like ice. And that was his ultimate decision on which one of those to go with. I don't even know. I, he may have just been being nice. I don't really know how far in the running Courtney Love even got. But um, Courtney Love has stated that losing this role to Nicole Kidman is one of the biggest disappointments of her career. Aww. She hates Nicole Kidman because she lost this role to Nicole Kidman. That's how badly she wanted it. She just, yeah, she absolutely cannot, she cannot stand Nicole Kidman, I guess, because she lost this role to her. So, I, as far as I'm concerned, it may have saved uh, 
Courtney Love's career, what little career she had at that point. So, uh, and then this movie is also on the uh, the list of one thousand and one movies you must see before you die, which is ironic because watching this film made me want to die <laughs> of consumption. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, that's all I've got. Poor Satine. No, no. <laughs> exactly what she deserved. All right, so next movie. All right, so we're we're done with Moulin Rouge. We're moving on to the editor now. She came out in 2014. Uh, stars uh, Paz de la Horta. Uh, she got uh, top billing because she's probably the most famous person in the entire movie, um, which, I mean, isn't saying a lot. She's, she's known in kind of the, like, B-movie sort of scene as kind of being one of those girls who has no problem being naked. Like, if you're going to see her in a movie, you're probably going to wind up seeing her naked, which I'm not against. She seems to enjoy it, so more power to her. Um, movies that, well, she was, I guess, her most famous role, or at least the role that she got the most exposure in, uh, literally and figuratively, was uh, <laughs> Boardwalk Empire. She she had a recurring role oh, in Boardwalk Empire. Who did she play in Boardwalk Empire? She was... Um, Steve, Steve Buscemi. Buscemi. She was Steve Buscemi's boy or girlfriend at one point. Okay. Um, and I think she wound up getting pregnant and he made her disappear. Oh, that was her. Yeah. She like had a breakdown or something during the course during the course of the season and then wound up disappearing or something. I don't remember exactly what happened to her. So I freak I I, re- I really love that show. Yeah, it's you, been a I long think, time since I've seen it. So. I think you might have been the one to actually recommend it to me. Maybe. Yeah. So I remember uh, actually putting all the episodes on a flash drive and taking the laptop, and the wife and I went up to a, a cabin somewhere and just kind of, when we were in the cabin, uh, we like loaded up Boardwalk Empire and we both just kind of binge watch it. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It nice. was It was really good. And she got into it too, just as much as I did, so... She also loves Steve Buscemi too. I mean, yeah. we both we both think he's pretty pretty good actor. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, but this isn't about Steve Buscemi. No. <laughs> um, then it's also got Adam Brooks, uh, Matthew Kennedy, and Connor Sweeney, who are all from Manborg and Father's Day. They're basically the main crew of Astron Six, which is kind of a low budget film production sort of company. For, based in Canada, um, they're all pretty funny guys. I think the most recent thing that they did was um, the Divorce Dad Show, which is like a five-part little like mini show that you can find on YouTube, and it runs about like maybe a half hour, all said and done. And it's basically like a, it's supposed to be kind of like a, um, a parody of like the old like public access shows that we used to have to watch when when we were kids and didn't have eight bajillion different cable channels. Yeah. So. Yeah. You you come home from school and yeah. it's PBS. Yeah. It's super, it's like super cringy comedy, uh, but then it changes into something else at the end and I'm not going to spoil any of that. Um, and then Udo Kier is in here. He's, he's one of those guys that if you watched a lot of like low budget horror films, you know exactly who I'm talking about. He's always the Nazi. 
He's always, yeah, he's always <laughs> the Nazi. Um, he's known for like Suspiria. He was in the original Suspiria, and which they're they're doing a remake of that pretty soon. Amazon is, I think. Um, and Iron Sky, I think he's been in all three. Well, he's been in. He's been at least two. He's been in the well. There's only two out right now, but they're oh. working on a third one. He's okay. got a role in that one as well. So he's been in all of the Iron Sky movies as well. So, and we may get to those sooner or later. Well, he did the uh, uh, the fake trailer in Grindhouse. Yeah, he was the werewolf. SS, yeah, werewolf, werewolf women, women of, of the, the SS. SS. Yeah. So this is basically an homage to the Giallo films of the seventies and eighties. Like the most famous directors in those kind of films were like Dario Argento and Lucio Fulci and Mario Bava. And they're like, um, they're Italian, like crime thrillers, slashers, psychological, supernatural horror, all kind of gets mixed into like this sort of big pot. They all have a very, all of these movies that came out around this time of these kind of Italian directors have like a very similar feel to them. And they're kind of based off of like, um, I could be remembering this wrong. So somebody in the audience can correct me, but they're all kind of based off kind of like a literary genre of like crime thrillers that were released in, um, in Italy. And they all came with, I think it was yellow spines on the books. And so they were called yellow books. Giallo is, is Italian for yellow. yellow. Oh. So these are, these are essentially yellow movies is what they're called. Cause they're all kind of based off of that sort of pulp crime thriller sort of a, a vibe. So this movie just runs the gamut of homages. Like there's just tons, like almost every scene in this in this movie as an homage to another movie that was released in the 70s or 80s by these Italian directors. So I was wondering because, uh, yeah, my, my first thought was, good God, this is a horrible movie. And then my second thought was, is this meant to be a horrible movie? Did they do that on purpose? And that's that's the theme I started kind of feeling through the whole thing. I was like, uh, I mean, there were there were scenes in there where uh, uh, that inspector, detective, whatever, like Porphyry, he he would just like walk up and just slap a woman. And I'm like, because this was you said 2015, 2014, 2014. Yeah. I'm like, that's not going to fly in a, a movie meant for today but it's paying tribute to movies of the 70s well the whole movie essentially takes place in the 70s right right um it's like you know the scene where they pull out the the vhs or the beta tape right and he's like you're gonna have to start our next movie is gonna be recorded on this and you're gonna have to figure out how to edit this and he's like how do you get the tape out of the thing (laughs) yeah it's it takes place in like the 70s and so it's yeah every the whole mentality is kind of like a 70s mentality so there's all sorts of like casual domestic abuse throughout this entire movie sexism yeah uh that whole scene where he uh uh inspector porphyry walks into the restaurant and uh and slaps josephine in front of ray yep and goes what is wrong with you man come and slap your wife for you because you can't do it yourself and yeah he was he was tailing him trying to stay uh undercover or whatever trying to trying to not be noticed and then he saw his woman basically verbally assaulting him in the restaurant and he couldn't sit there and listen to it any longer. So yeah. he had to take action. Yeah. Maybe and, next time I'll slap you. Yeah. 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 But yeah. And then he walks away and Josephine's like, he's right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Slap myself. <laughs> <laughs> so like, all right. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. So that's where this film is coming from. So it, it, it was, it was horrible, but it's supposed to be that way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's, um, it pays, it pays homage to these kind of films in a lot of ways. Like the, uh, the very first scene where, uh, Ray, the editor comes home and goes, honey, I'm in our home. Like the, the, it, it, it's bad translations, bad dubbing, all of that stuff was super common in these films. Right. So they'd make it over to America like in the eighties on like VHS and stuff. And the dubbing would just be awful. And so you'd wind up with all these weird line readings like, honey, I'm in our home. And, and it sounded like most of these guys are uh, either American or Canadian. Yeah. They're actors. mostly Canadian actors. Yeah. This whole movie was filmed in, I think Ontario. But they're basically pretending to be French. They're pretending to be Italian. Oh, Italian! They're pretending yeah. to be Italian. Yeah, and then and then dubbing. Yeah, I think a lot of they do a lot of like dubbing afterwards, even though they're they're not doing the whole like Japanese dubbing where it's like the mouth is moving and saying different stuff. Right. And they're doing they're just redubbing their own. Um, but the, but they're also lines. dubbing off. But too. The, yeah, they're yeah. dubbing it slightly off so right. that it always looks like the dubbing isn't quite great. Okay. Yeah. So even down to that detail, yeah. they were making yeah. sure to make it as bad almost, as possible. Yeah, almost everything about this film is designed to be as close to a 1970s bad uh, giallo film as right. possible. Okay. So All it's, right. it's a pretty fantastic, uh, I mean, technically speaking, it's like, it's just an exercise in attempting to accomplish that sort of a feat. Right. And you can respect it for that or you can hate it for that because there's a lot of people that hate movies that try to be bad films but aren't actually bad films. Um, I love it, though, because it's one of those things where it's a, it's a fan's film. It's a fan. Of, yeah. If you're a fan of the Giallo films, you start recognizing all the stuff almost immediately. And it uh, it pokes fun at the stuff. It doesn't take it a lot. It doesn't take it seriously. But you can tell that the people who did it actually love these movies. So... Yeah, I I don't I didn't know what a giallo film was, so I didn't know where it was coming from necessarily, which is why I spent probably the first half hour of the movie trying to figure out for sure if it was supposed to be bad. Right. But I am a fan of, you know, good movies that are trying to be bad or or right. whatever you want to call it. I mean, that's I don't know. I mean, I recommended you know Six String Samurai. Right. That one was pretty bad. <laughs> so. But I don't know. It was uh, the mask the the murderer had, not the real murderer, but the murderer in the movie. Right. That had, had, had a mask. There was yeah. Was it? Was it Michael Jackson mask? It looked I, like Michael Jackson. I don't know if it was or not. I don't know if it was supposed to be. Or I not, would but. I would say no because this movie is supposed to take place in the seventies. Right. But I mean, I mean, Michael Jackson was still popular in the seventies. He was just a little he, kid at the time. Yeah, I don't so. think he had reached the height. Until yeah. like the early '80s is when he reached that height of popularity. Yeah. As far as I know, no, it's not. It's definitely not supposed to be a Michael Jackson later when he's turning white, right? Sort of a mask. It's that's kind of that's kind of what it looked like to me. But I was like, I don't, I don't know. No, I think there was. I think that mask is actually supposed to be an homage to a mask in one of these 1970s Giallo films. And by the way, I'm going to have to say outright right here. I don't know all of the specific references. Right, right. Like, I haven't watched all of these films, so I, I, I don't know them. But Apparently, these guys have, though. <laughs> yes, they absolutely yeah, have. Yeah. So Everybody behaves suspiciously in this movie because it's kind of set up to be like a... Whodunit. A thr- yeah, a whodunit, yeah. sort of a thriller film. 
So, and this is a, a trope that's very common to these Giallo films. Is everybody in the film behaves suspiciously because they're all suspects. So this is, and some of it is, is taken to the outright extreme, like when Cal, the bad actor, chases down Ray in his car and then pulls out the chainsaw and talks about how he's going to cut him up because he cut him out of the, the film, which is a ridiculous overreaction right. being cut out of the film. Jalo Films has stuff like this all the time, just these constant overreactions to really small things. So even stuff like that is an homage to the behavior in these kind of films. I, I and I, I know you said you don't understand all of the references. The rubbing the mud or cake or whatever all over his face at the height of orgasm thing. Mm-hmm. Just like I yeah. I don't I was like, what? the fuck well, is that about porphyry inspector porphyry is all about the weird sex yeah so any any giallo film that had weird sex in it all of that got transmuted into porphyry's character and it just kind of comes out of nowhere literally and figuratively <laughs> it's he he just has weird sex with people it sometimes includes violence and broken bottles for no reason yeah and a lot of times it involves uh, smearing crap all over his face for no apparent reason and screaming and screaming yeah. too. Yeah. And then it kind of later on turns into like, he might be kind of gay for Cal and Cal might be kind of gay for him, but they never have the chance to consummate yeah, that relationship. They, they never, they never get yeah. there. And then Cal gets killed and Porphyry loses his shit because yes, of he it. he does. Yeah. And scenes like that too, there's, um, so after after Cal gets killed, um, Porphyry is out underneath an overpass uh, down by a river and sends his dog out to go play fetch. Like he throws a, a stick out and the dog brings back uh, a severed Fingers. hand. He brings no, back a severed right hand. Right, the whole hand, right. Yeah, and, uh, and then it kind of cuts to another scene and then you kind of, like right after that, see in flashback um, Porphyry discovering... Uh, Cal's body and pulling it out of the river and trying to do CPR on it and stuff, even though he's way dead. Yeah. But all of that stuff is also homages to the shitty editing in these Giallo films. Because that whole sequence, the first time you watch it, it's really confusing because the dog shows up with the hand and then Porphyry screams out Cal's name, but there's no inclination that he has any reason to understand that that is Cal's hand. So then they go back and insert. So then they go back later and insert a flashback where he finds the body, even though he finds the body after he's already called out Cal's name. Right. It's just, it's shitty editing and they do that on purpose. And I'm, I'm then also assuming that the level of nudity is pretty on par. With yeah. This movie is, um, they're pretty much naked the entire time. Well, it's not just that they are all equal opportunity nudists. Oh, they yeah. full yeah. frontal male and female. Not at all ashamed of either that. This movie, if you watch the scenes in the film set, there are almost always naked people in the background for no apparent reason. Yep. They're just, they have a funhouse mirror at one point in time and a naked girl walking away from the funhouse mirror and her her body is all distorted. Just weird shit like that. Because these movies had, because they're exploitative films, the Giallo films were exploitative films. So there was nudity for no reason in them all the time. So the one thing that this film actually was kind of devoid of 
if I if I'm I'm trying to think back in case I I'm wrong about this, but I don't think there's a single actual legitimate rape scene in this entire film. And rape scenes showed up a lot in not just Giallo films, but in like the early eighties. A lot of sexploitation. It was just whenever they yeah. they wanted to find ways to get boobs into films. Yeah. And inevitably, it wound up being in a rape scene where an evil person would rape a woman, and that was how you knew that he was he, he was evil. That doesn't really show up at all in this film. I think maybe the closest is when Cal winds up having sex with Josephine in front of Ray. And then winds up apologizing for it afterwards, which is kind of like a modern day sensibility. The sort of idea that he kind of rapes his wife and then goes, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of actually kind of sorry that happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That whole scene. Well, I mean, she started enjoying it too. Well, it yeah, but that's out, also, but... that's also a trope of these sort of films yeah. where you have women being raped and then suddenly they like it. And that tends to be when heroes rape women there that happens in like eighties movies and stuff too, where a sex scene will start off as kind of a rape scene. And then the woman will suddenly be in it because that's the hero. Right. And she wants to be with the heroes or like it. It's one of those. Yeah. Cause secretly that's what she wanted all along. Right. Right. Uh, I liked a couple, uh, couple of lines in there, which I'm sure are obviously homages, but uh, if this is living, I want no part of it. Yeah, which comes at the most inappropriate time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't trust each other until I find the culprit, which is goes back to what you were saying about all of them are suspicious. But This yeah. is right after he gets freaked out when he bumps into the body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh, and the uh, the starlet uh, goes blind after seeing the dead body. And yeah. Then, and then he says, women's eyes aren't meant to see these things. Mm-hmm. The hysterical blindness. Oh, and multiple times the director kept saying uh, things about the editor. Uh, one of them was, I knew it'd be fun having a cripple around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then later he takes that back and is like... Uh, you know, I knew I should have never hired a cripple or, or something like mm-hmm. that. Like, it's like, but, you know. They they delight in the sort of, like, non-PC sort of culture of the yeah. 70s and 80s. Yeah. So there's no shortage of people calling Ray a cripple because he's missing, if you didn't watch the film, he's missing, I think it's on his left hand, he's missing all four fingers on his left hand. Is it his right hand? It was his right hand. Okay, it's his yeah. right hand. He's missing all four fingers. Not that right it matters hand. that much. I should know yeah. this. I've watched the film a bajillion times, but there's like a there's a scene with him and his cat out on the the balcony, like right after he gets home the first time, and he's smoking a cigarette, uh-huh. which always it always throws me off because it's it's supposed to be like a 1970s or 80s sort of film. They just smoke wherever, whenever, all the time. And one of the scenes that actually have him smoking and holding a cigarette while he's holding the cat. Yeah. And so I'm kind of like, mm, did they really let them get away with that? But uh, he says to his cat something along the lines of, did you come out here to kill yourself too? <laughs> <laughs> I missed that part. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, when the inspector's asking the editor about the, it's like, you're wearing the same clothes. Right. And then the editor's like, you're wearing the same clothes. What were you doing? And he was like, I'm an inspector. I I have have to wear the same clothes clothes. every day. (laughs) Well, there was another, there was another, because that's one of the, that's kind of those instances of like sort of bad translations 
where like he like if it had been an Italian film, he would have probably said something along the lines of it's part of my uniform or something along those lines. Right. But it gets translated poorly into I have to wear the same I have to wear it, right. There's another scene like that with um, Claudio, who is the original main lead of the film that's being shot in this movie. Right. And um, him and his girlfriend, also, who's also an actress in the film, are watching a work print of the movie. And they're watching it because... Claudio wants to watch his own scenes and he's real self-absorbed. And so he's, they're watching this film and the killer is in the room with them and they're not aware of it yet, but they hear something and Claudio freaks out and goes, I've heard that these old film sets are haunted and I'll be damned if I let myself see a ghost or something along those lines. Just the, the notion that I will be damned if I let myself see a ghost right. is it's just a great concept, even beyond the, the, the homage to the bad dialogue. Uh, also, uh, uh, poor Foy uh, talking to the uh, priest. Oh, bishop, the one he keeps calling a wizard. He keeps calling him a wizard. And at, at one point he says, I don't want to hear your wizard speak. I mean, yeah. 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 Those are uh, some some of my more favorite lines from there, but. Yeah, I, I never had uh, seen a, a Giallo film before, so. Yeah, I actually have I have a note about that. It says, uh, wizard speak equals editors were bridges to the netherworld in Roman times. Right. Checks out. <laughs> Just, it's hilarious. I don't know, like, I mean, I guess there technically were editors of a sort in Roman times. There had to be people that, like, were like, all right, well, we're not going to use this part of the story or whatever. Technically, but the Maybe. I, yeah. The, yeah, just the notion that film editors is kind of what's implied. I think it's just one of those things where it's another uh, uh, throwback to like bad translation. Bad translation, yeah. But the idea editors in Roman time were often considered bridges to the netherworld. There's also, and there's a thing this movie kind of starts off as like a crime thriller, but it very quickly turns into this weird supernatural thing where Ray. Uh, the editor keeps wind up transporting into this other world where he can see stuff that's going on in the out in the real world. Right. And it's hard to tell, like, is this really happening? Is this all in his head? But like he sees his assistant get killed. And then he, he also like transports to some of those places that he's viewing yeah. as well. You There's know, a like point where he winds there. up punching out of the editing machine and climbs out of the editing machine. Yeah. He's all covered in black. Yeah. And that first scene, that very first scene where he sees the the shadow self behind the coat rack when he's going to bed with his wife and she turns off the light and the shadow self kind of like half peeks out behind the coat rack. Yeah, I thought that was kind of him. Well, it was him. It okay. was definitely, it was him, but it's it's like his shadow self. But like that's a genuinely creepy scene. It was. That was actually pretty freaking creepy. Yeah. So they they hit even those nails, like because a lot of the stuff that happens in these films can wind up being like real, just creepy because it's so weird and out there. And this is one of those scenes where it's just it's way out of left field, and it comes off as super creepy. Yeah, it's almost like they accidentally sometimes did something good. Yeah, even the even a stop clock. Or An accident. The, yeah, even a stop <laughs> clock is right twice a day or yeah, something. Yeah. yeah. We haven't talked about it yet, but Udo Kier shows up in the film as um, a doctor at a mental asylum. Right. Uh, because during the course of the investigation, Porphyry discovers that Ray had spent some time in a hospital. Um, the director, who seems to be kind of 
he's the least PC character in the film. Like he keeps calling uh, Ray a cripple, and uh, the 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 hospital that Ray goes to is a mental asylum in his head, and like or a loony bin. Like it's just right. So he explains to um, Porphyry that he is that that Ray has been in a in a loony bin or whatever, and so. Porphyry winds up following up on that lead and winds in the course of that, he winds up meeting Udo Kier who plays the doctor in that sequence. And he winds up talking about a thing called Plato's cave, which is basically the sort of idea that uh, they would tell stories with shadows on the wall and none of it was real. And uh, Ray had this idea in his head that the real world worked that way, that nothing was real and it was all uh, an imagined thing. And so that winds up kind of playing out throughout the course of the story with, him winding up in the shadow world afterwards and yeah. seeing the real world beyond that. And, but it's never, well, it's, it's, you spend the whole movie kind of wondering how that fits into the rest of the film. And it doesn't really pay off to the very end of the film. When you find out that Porphyry has been trapped in a movie the whole time, uh, the whole, like it's got this whole kind of like, what a twist sort yeah. of vibe yeah. to yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> And it's really, it's a ridiculous twist too. It comes way out of left field. There's no reason for it whatsoever. This is all homages to like these kind of crappy exploitative films of the seventies. Like all of this kind of stuff. They hit every fucking nail that they could and they knocked out of the park as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I mean, they seem to do a really good job and, and from, I mean, you can kind of tell when actors are actually having fun or not when they're when they're performing their roles and and these guys actually did seem to have fun making that movie. Well, these guys these guys are having fun on every movie that they make. That's good. I, I'll have to see another one they do. The film that Astron Six is best known for is Manborg, which is essentially like a green screen masterpiece. It's um, you've probably seen at least bits or pieces of it on on YouTube because it was all over YouTube when it first came out. It's basically kind of like a RoboCop sort of a setup where a soldier winds up dying on a battlefield and they convert him into kind of like a cyborg. And this all takes place in like a dystopic future sort of a thing. Manborg. Yeah. It's, I need to uh, look that up because yeah. I have not seen that or heard of it. Right. Well, it's probably going to wind up being one of our movies sooner or later. So right. it's a pretty it's a pretty great film. And this, uh, what, what was the production company again? That Astron Six. Astron Six. Yeah, that's a, a pretty much the first time I've actually heard of them, and they pretty much do uh, uh, not mainstream. Yeah, they stuff. do a lot of in, all of their stuff tends to be pretty independent. Um, I think they raise a lot of the money themselves, or have kind of like um, like local backers and stuff like that. And um, they're kind of like, in a sense, they're kind of like trauma, where they do kind of that real, like, under-the-radar, super-low-budget sort of stuff. And a lot of it is done uh, real heavy on the humor. This is probably their most... This is honestly probably their most accessible film. Okay. So if you watched this film and didn't like it, uh, you will almost definitely not like their other two films. Well, I don't know if they've done more than two. The other two, I only know... Of three films that they've done for for certain, that's Manborg, Father's Day, and this one. Manborg is kind of more of just a straight up sort of uh, like goofy parody sort of a film, like it's dystopian parody. Kind of, yeah. 
it's hard to explain what Manborg is exactly. There was, um, God, what was the name of that film? There was like a 30 minute, like short film that came out on YouTube and fucking everybody went nuts about. Oh, this is going to bug me not remembering the name of this film. But it's basically kind of like a, a send off to all the 1980s action films. Oh. So it has like the guys riding dinosaurs in it and, um, this dude winds up flip like uh like uh mule kicking a like Lamborghini or something and flipping it off into like space and it's not the one that came up on Steam. Was it's like it? Kung, I think it's Kung Fury. I think that's yeah. the name of it. Yeah, that was yeah. on Steam for free once too. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Manborg is very similar in tone. Like Manborg is that kind of a film, and I think Manborg actually came out first. Okay, so I didn't love Kung Fury. I I appreciated right aspects of it, but. Uh, I feel like Manborg might actually be more up my alley because maybe because of my you know dystopian sort of fixation or right. whatever because I keep you know disaster prepping or whatever and yeah. waiting for the end of the world. The one thing, if you guys, <laughs> if you or the listeners at home are going to go check out Manborg after this, the one thing to keep in mind is this is a green screen film and it's super low budget. So everything looks like super low budget green screen. Low budget green screen. Yep. Got it. So that's the thing to keep in mind. But it's it's still it's a, the film's fun as hell. I enjoy the film a lot. So I think the out of out of the three films they've done, I think Father's Day is probably their worst. It's got its fan base, and it's it's a pretty hardcore fan base to be honest. But it's just one of those films where they kind of go for the gross out humor every single time. So if you're into gross out humor, then you probably like Father's Day too. But I'm not a huge fan of just straight up gross out humor for no, yeah, without anything else to kind of really, it is weird coming from the guy who like grew up loving garbage pill kids, but it's a different, it's a different kind of gross out humor. Garbage pill kids are a real juvenile. This is dark, dark underbelly of humanity, gross out humor. (laughs) So if you're into that, I mean, check out Father's Day. Everybody in this film seems to have a mysterious past. That's another kind of trope of the genres. Everybody's, at least the main characters' pasts are always. There's always something shady that's going on in their in their background. For instance, like Ray winding up in the the um, the hospital for his mental issues. Right. But like even Porphyry has the weird sex stuff that that's happened. Like when he meets um, Cal for the first time and meets his wife at the same time. And him and his wife have already, they used to be lovers. And they do go into the flashback where that's the first time you see him uh, smear, shit all smear dirt all yeah, over his face. That's yeah, just this, he has this weird background that involves him having weird sex with people all the time. So, but yeah, everybody in these films had these kind of weird backgrounds. Well, and marks. then uh, uh, when, uh, was it Porphyry's wife that died? Yeah, the, the, the chick that had the hysterical blindness. That was his wife. And then, uh, is that the one that he covered up? He covered up somebody's murder. Yeah, yeah. he wound up he wound up killing her with an axe on accident. Yeah, right. on accident. because yep. the the murderer was actually like in the kitchen with her, and he pushed her head in front of the axe at the right. last minute. Yeah, yeah. So then he covered up that murder to make it look like it was a killer, which technically it kind of sort of was, but not really because yeah. Porphyry struck the killing blow. It's just on accident, but yeah, it's it's one of those things. It it tries to show you that Porphyry is not the sort of 
like the white knight paladin that he kind of presents himself to be. That he yeah, it's almost like he he thinks he's that guy, but then he, yeah, but he's super willing to break rules and bend rules and yeah, and he, and then he starts having sex and you're like, oh dear God, here we go again. Yeah, and then he has weird sex, um, but then like he also he he, um, he convinces Giancarlo, I think that's his name, his partner, that he was involved somehow in the murder. He witnessed the black yeah. guy that killed his wife and. Yeah, he's just he's a he's a shady character as well. Like yeah. everybody in the film is a shady. Even um, they even portray Bella, who was um, Ray's assistant, as kind of a shady character. At one point, when she has like a strange obsession obsession with Ray. Oh yeah, yeah. So you get this kind of idea that she might be some sort of like a crazy sycophant, and she might be the one who's killing people. They do that with most yeah, of the no, characters you, you, in this film. You pretty much by the end of the film, you pretty much think everybody who's still alive could be the murderer. Yeah. Everybody. <laughs> there's so many, like there's just so many scenes. Like I keep, like I brought up Udo Kier because I wanted to talk about the scene where Udo Kier. So this is me jumping way back to a conversation that we had a while ago. I think it was Udo, two hours ago. Yeah. It's something like four or five days ago, I think. Yeah. Udo Kier shows up in the film and he has a conversation with Porphyry where they talk about Plato's cave and stuff, but they also talk about uh, a different sort of past than the one that Ray described, like a different reason for him to go into the hospital than the one that Ray just said, you know, I was stressed out and I needed to, right. you know. Um, where the doctor presents it as he had like these weird psychological issues and he almost tried to kill his assistant. And he cut off his own fingers. Yeah, well, he cut off his own fingers in both stories. It was yeah, just but the, one, was an, one accident, was an accident, and the other one he was going nuts. Yeah. Um, because he thought reality wasn't real. Yeah. And he also almost killed his assistant. So the doctor and Porphyry, is, Porphyry are talking about this, and Porphyry goes, well, I need to go talk to his assistant. Um, or he goes, what happened to his assistant? And uh, the doctor goes, well, let me show you something. And he turns on this little monitor and they have this guy who's wrapped in bandages in the padded cell, rolling around screaming and shit. And uh, Porphyry goes, this might be one of my favorite lines in the entire movie. Uh, Porphyry says, um, why is he wrapped in these bandages? And the doctor goes, I don't know. <laughs> weird. <laughs> really weird. <laughs> I was like, why the hell do you want to show him that? Then? Like, you don't know what the hell's going on. I don't know. It's one of those scenes where it's just like, it's utter, it's utter nonsense. And I'm always like, anytime utter nonsense shows up, that's when my attention really like kicks in a gear. Like in um, Moulin Rouge, when the fairy shows up, like I wasn't paying attention up to the point when the fairy shows up. And then I'm like, why the fuck is there a fairy in this film all of yeah. a sudden? And then once the fairy went away, I wasn't paying attention anymore. Yeah. Utter nonsense definitely grabs my attention. So, and this film's got tons of it. So, I don't know. I just, I, I genuinely love this film. It's probably one of my favorite films to come out within, you know, the last 10 years or so. And uh, I watch it all the time. I've seen this movie way more times than I can count. I've seen it once because yeah. I seriously made notes while I was watching it the first time around. Nice. Instead of the second time, <laughs> like normal. <laughs> but I'll probably watch it again because honestly, you know, starting off, I was like, is this another fucking trick or treats movie? <laughs> and then 
got into it and I started heavily suspecting it was meant to be as bad as it was. But then, and after about that point, that's when I actually started enjoying it for the ridiculousness that it was. After I started realizing, okay, they're doing this to make fun of something. I mean, something I hadn't seen before. Right. But they were doing it to make fun of something. So I started enjoying it a little bit more after that point. Yeah. Uh, If you watch this film and you kind of, and you aren't familiar with Giallo films, it can be kind of a a difficult sort of entry point into that. It's, you know, after a genre has kind of established itself and has been around for a while, you will eventually kind of come across the, the parody films that sort of make fun of the tropes of that genre. And this is a genre that's, you know, 40 plus years old at this point. Um, I think it started in maybe like the mid to late sixties and ran all the way to the mid to late eighties before it kind of petered out. If you don't really have any, and because, I mean, these are one, you have to be into horror films. And then on top of that, you have to be into import horror films. And then on top of that, you have to be into low budget kind of crappy import horror films with bad dubbing and bad dialogue and all that. If you're not into that, I mean, that's a lot of niches that you have to climb down into. Um, Oddly enough, Giallo films are still super popular among horror fans. But if you haven't reached that point... From from what I understand, they actually have theaters dedicated specifically to playing only... Yeah. Yeah. You will find a lot of independently owned theaters that play... Jello films almost exclusively, but if you've never encountered that and this is your first encounter with the with that genre, it can be kind of difficult. You don't know, you know, what the joke is in service of, yeah, and so it just feels like nonsense on top of nonsense on top of nonsense wrapped up in a bad film. If you kind, I mean, if you want, if you want a a better kind of view of the the overall humor of this film if it piques your curiosity enough any film by Dario Argento watch Dario Argento was the master of these giallo films uh, Lucio Fulci was another great he didn't do uh, giallo films exclusively but he did a lot of them and the ones that he did were also really good Mario Bava was another master any any movie that's directed by any of these three guys these are kind of like the the three tenors of the of the giallo film <laughs> well played sir You're, yeah i know <laughs> um if you any film directed by these guys you're gonna have a good time as long i mean if as long as you got into this film and and you were good with this film you can watch these films knowing ahead of time they're gonna be they're gonna be dubbed badly the dialogue is gonna be a little bit fucked they're fun films. Usually way over they they will usually go way over the top in some way, shape, or form. Just be prepared for that. But yeah. Dario Argento, Lucio Fulci, Mario Bava. Check out anything that they've done. I mean almost all of it is good. So But all right then. That's all I've got for this. Stupendosaurus Rex. That was entirely unnecessary. That was our music break. Right. It's things that we don't do anymore. Right. Uh, so, suggestions for the upcoming week? 
Oh yeah, that's uh, it's on you first, man. Oh right, I'm yeah, I'm not hosting, so you I aren't. should probably not suggest things to Mm-mm. do. Okay, uh, I I am gonna challenge you all to challenge me. Meet the same challenge. Let's all do it together. Let's read the new Stephen King book. All right. What's the name of it? It's called The Outsider. The Outsider has a cool little silhouette shadow on the on the cover upside down it's an upside down it's an upside down silhouette yeah i don't know it promises to be pretty good from what i understand uh since i was going to recommend the same thing haha um i'm just going to say if you already read the outsider read any stephen king book that you haven't read yet if you've read all of stephen king's books then read a clive barker book instead you know what? Skip Stephen King. Go straight to straight to Clive Barker. Uh, read a Magica. That'll take you. That'll take you at least two weeks. Magica's pretty good. Yep, that's I M A J I C A. Go check that book out. That'll 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 bend your mind a bit, right? So uh, I guess with that, we got that out of the way real quick. Yeah, we did. Um, all right. So what's your movie for next week? So after. Uh visiting with my stepmom for a bit. She reminded me of a few movies that I actually... It was nice of your stepmom to come visit us in space. Well, you know, there's like Skype and things. Or she flew out here. Right. I mean, Elon Musk is doing all sorts of fancy stuff with that SpaceX program, so... But, uh... She reminded me of a few movies that I had initially planned on adding to my list actually that I had forgot to put on my list so um, and one of those movies is one that I definitely want to make you suffer through never ending story oh that's not that's like that's not you're like ah, that's easy that's that's super easy I've I've watched that movie a bunch of times all right so never ending story is is my movie for next week all right I can do that that's Way, way <laughs> better than Moulin Rouge. Um, I spoke to Jason uh, about this you know, a while ago. I was talking about there are there are musicals that I like, and uh, I was kind of waiting for Jason to to put out the first musical because he's kind of the guy who who digs music. Of the two of us, he's the guy who really digs musicals. A lot of musicals. Um, so I I, I kind of wanted him to sort of pop that cherry. Um, so I figured, you know, after he would, I could go ahead and feel free to put out or to, to recommend whatever musical I wanted. I changed my mind. Oh. I, after watching Moulin Rouge, I decided I didn't want to watch another musical for a long time. Ever. <laughs> so, uh, so I was, I was going to recommend a musical this, Aww. this, this, this upcoming episode. Uh, nah, it's not going to happen. Uh, I think we all need a break from musicals for at least two weeks. Um, so I'm going to recommend another recent movie, uh, even more recent than The Editor, which was 2014. Uh, this movie came out 2017. Um, it was at one point in time exclusive only to Netflix, but I think that you can actually find it on other services now. Um, and that movie is called The Ritual. So uh, that is my recommendation, The Ritual 2017 starring people that I don't actually know from any other movies. So interesting. Yeah. And it's a, it's a good little horror flick. So stick into my wheelhouse. Should I bother trying to guess what your musical was going to be? 
You can guess. I'm just not going to tell you. Yeah, that's, I figured. I hmm. figured. Well then, yeah, I definitely have ideas. Like, like when you do on on the day that you do propose a musical, I want to guess before you say it. Because, okay. Because I feel like I maybe know what you might pick, but I, okay. I don't know for sure. Okay. I mean, you know, there's a few out there though that that I think you might have actually passably enjoyed even though they had singing in them you know have you, have you written out a list for them yet um written no you should yeah you should if you don't have it in your head you should write out a list and put it in the order that you think that i would recommend them i might i might do that it might be interesting to see yeah because i do have them in my head <laughs> <laughs> all right folks uh that's all i have for this week you got anything else to add I honestly believe any of the musicals that my wife might have liked, plus a couple of the more darker musicals that I've seen that she hasn't, because she hates musicals, maybe even more than you do. No, that's, that's not possible. That's debatable. Yeah, but she does, she's not a huge fan of musicals either, so with that in mind, though, I feel like between my knowledge of the musicals she is accepting of and the movies that you like. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've, I've got you figured. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this will be interesting to find out then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, folks, if you want to contact us, and we know you do, it's not difficult to contact us. You can get a hold of us on Facebook at StupendousRxRex at Facebook.com. You can get a hold of us on Twitter at Stupendous underscore Rex. Um, and you can send us an email at stupendousourcerex at gmail.com. Um, and we would love to hear from you. Don't you want to join the crowd? You definitely want to join the crowd. Be, Be a, a follower, follower. Not a leader. <laughs> yeah. So that's it, folks. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we love all of you. Um, both of you. Fine. <laughs> we love both of you so much. Uh, until next time. This has been a Stupendous Horse Rex production. Sure. <laughs> <laughs>